Hello and welcome to another exciting and jam-packed episode of Modern Day Philosophers. I'm your host, I'm Danny Lobel, and today I'm going to be joined by a good friend of mine of many years, Liz Mealy, the wonderful, fantastic Liz Mealy. Liz and I started comedy together in New York City, and I always felt a very special kinship with Liz in that we were the only two young comedians that I'm aware of in the whole New York comedy scene that had a special friendship with George Carlin. And because of that, I felt like we were almost comedy cousins. Not only that, I've always found Liz to be absolutely brilliant and really, really funny and wonderful and just a, a person with a strong point of view who's able to deliver that strong point of view and that message with a strong comedic sensibility and great timing. So it's wonderful to have her on the show today, and I'm excited to share her with you. Before we get into that, we're going to take a moment to listen to this wonderful word from our sponsor. Warning, stand-up records may cause intestinal distress, fits of insane laughter, instant diarrhea, existential malaise, headaches, nausea, dizziness, vomiting, seasonal affective disorder, more headaches, pneumomono, ultramicroscopic silicovolcanoconiosis. Stand-up records should not be handled by women who are pregnant, may become pregnant, have ever been pregnant, or personally know anyone who has been pregnant. Do not consult your doctor if he's operating heavy machinery. Stand-up records is for external application only. And stand-up records is, of course, good for a few laughs. So remember that's standuprecords.com for the world's finest comedy CDs, DVDs, and merchandise. That's standuprecords.com. The revolution will be hilarious. I can't stress it enough. Stand Up Records is a wonderful brand that has put out some tremendous comedy. Guys like Hannibal Burris and Mark Marin and myself and uh, Maria Bamford, Doug Stanhope. You really need to make your way over to StandUpRecords.com and pick up some albums. Get caught up on great comedy. If you haven't got them already, they make great gifts for yourself or for somebody else. Go get some records. StandUpRecords.com. That's a double ad right there. Their ad plus my endorsement for the ad. But that's how enthusiastic I am about stand-up records. I have another album coming out with them soon, and I'm excited for that. I'll tell you more about it when it's closer to the release date. Now, what's been going on with me? It's been a while since we caught up. I'm going to be in Kansas City this weekend. I've never been to Kansas City before. The show is, is sold out, and I'm excited for that. Um, I love traveling. I love to get to go places. So this is a big, big deal for me. Uh, I have a show now every first Tuesday night at the Improv here in Hollywood. It's at 8 p.m. the first Tuesday of the month. If you're ever in town or if you live in town, you can come out and see me. It's a storytelling show that I created called Bookshelf. And it's comedians on stage with a bookshelf. And the long and short of it is they take books off the bookshelf. An audience member yells out a page number. They read the page and they relate what they just read to a true story from their life, so nobody has a chance to prepare, much like this show. Uh, everything I do requires no preparation. In fact, not only does it require it, but it demands no preparation. So that's what's going on there. And I'm just trucking along. I'm a married man. I'm trying to make a living. I'm trying to figure it out. I'm trying to figure out how I can have a kid at some point. I don't have a good income yet, but um, I'm working on it. I'm out there every night doing shows. If I'm not on a show, I'm hanging out at a show. I'm, an, I'm a motivated man. I'm trying. I'm funnier than I've ever been. I feel it. I feel that inside. I've been working hard on my craft. I'm writing new jokes. I'm perfecting them. I'm performing the hell out of them instead of kind of performing them. And uh, I'm optimistic. I'm optimistic that something big is going to happen, and it better. <laughs> It better happen soon. I don't know. I think that the key to it all is staying positive. If you have a positive point of view, if you have a positive attitude, no matter where you are in life, your life is good. And if you have a negative attitude, no matter where you are in life, your life is bad. So I stay positive. I'm trying to just be happy all the time, stay positive, be a nice person, be a genuine person, be good to everybody I meet, and hopefully the results will be fantastic. And if they're not... Hey, I was happy the whole way through, so who can complain? Hear the sirens outside. Somebody's in a worse situation than I am. So I'm lucky, and you're lucky too, because you're about to hear a great show. Coming up, without further ado, except for the intro song, my talk with the phenomenal Liz Mealy. Enjoy. Yeah. <laughs> 
Hello, and welcome to Modern Day Philosophers. Modern Day Philosophers. Having failed to pay attention in school, Danny Lobel, now older and wiser, will attempt to learn basic philosophy 101. Our young hero will be joined by today's top comedians, philosophers all their own. Ladies and gentlemen, here's Danny Lobel. Modern Day Philosophers. Liz, I guess you're probably one of my oldest comedy friends we met like when I first started, which was like 13 years ago. Yeah. Did you, do, do we have the same year? I started March 2002. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We that's, started around exactly the same that's time. That's crazy. Yeah. I was just reflecting on it the other day because I was telling a friend of mine, I was like, I was like, I thought my parents were being ridiculous because I lied about doing I started when I was 16 so I and I grew up in Jersey so I lied about it for a while and then when I did tell them they always made me have like a guardian like some other parent come and they didn't watch my I, even when my parents came like I wouldn't a let different them, parent like a, yeah, a friend's like, parent yeah like a friend's parent would come or they would come but they would sit in a Starbucks I wouldn't let them watch me or whatever but I was I wrote something on Facebook because it's exactly what I said I was just like god I'm just a 16 year old girl traveling by herself telling jokes to strangers in a city that just got attacked, like calm down. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it, I didn't realize until probably a year ago. Oh, that's kind of crazy. Like that was yeah. not even a, like, it's like not even a full year after nine 11. And I was just going around New York city being like, why is everybody so weird? <laughs> like we're fine. We're totally, I'm just telling jokes and I'm a girl and it's not a big deal. You think maybe, maybe you were just traumatized. I mean, this all started out of traumatic shock. It, to me, it's just, I, I think I was so suppressed by my family that when I finally decided what I wanted to do, nobody could tell me no. And I just, I, you, you, I'm also, you know, I mean, 16 years old, you're only thinking about your own needs and yourself. And I spent so much time taking care of my family that I was like, going to the city, I'm telling jokes. I don't care if a bunch of people died in the city. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I'd be one of those people that'd be in Rwanda. I'd be like, why is everybody sad? What are we doing? What? It's a little genocide. Let's all talk about it. Like, I'm just, just so young and ignorant to what kind of happened in the city, let alone the real dangers that I just cared about telling jokes to strangers. How were you suppressed by your parents? I want to hear about Because, by the way, as you're saying all this stuff, it's really interesting because so much of it is like my story in a weird way. But Yeah, well, I think people that tend to be really opinionated and tend to need people to hear those opinions are usually people that didn't get the didn't have the ear for it in the beginning. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Because right. I... I I don't just want people to hear my opinion. I want everyone to hear my opinion. That's not healthy. Because <laughs> it was kind of like if two people heard it, maybe this wouldn't have been a problem. <laughs> but I was, I just grew up in a family where um, it, it was incredibly stressful and it was very dysfunctional and you did what you were told mm -hmm. and you, nothing outside of it. And so as I started, I, first of all, when I started doing stand-up, I didn't, I didn't think I was going to be good at it because I didn't think I had opinions. And I didn't think anybody would want to listen to them. Same here. I, I was like, I don't have anything real to say. Yeah. I, but, but so quickly you started to be like, oh, I'm an angry, crazy, opinionated person. I was just, I was told, I was, it literally was shut off. I was told also, don't answer back. Don't have any contrary thing to say. Yeah. So it's just like, I went into it and I was like, I'm, I had this terrible fear. I'm going to make it about me now. But yeah, go for it. I had this terrible fear that all my opinions were just programmed into me. Like mm -hmm. I wasn't a real person at yeah. all. I was just basically programmed by my parents and I was going to get seen for that. People yeah. were going to be like, oh, that's just his parents. Yeah. He's not even real. He doesn't even exist. In some ways, you kind of are programmed by your parents. I don't think it's as um, a lot in a lot of ways. They think they're programming their kids by saying stuff, but it's really you pick up on what they do. Like some of my worst habits is stuff my parents did. Because my, I mean, what's nice is some of my great habits were my parents did. My dad would give the shirt off his back to anybody. My dad was always putting other people first, was just a generous, kind, thoughtful person to everyone. There was, you know what I mean? It doesn't matter who you are, where you're from, whatever. That's always, so that is who I grew up to be. But then my dad would also talk shit about everyone so it's like that does, and I, that was a, it took me a long time to erase like keep the good part and right. erase the bad part and that's still something I struggle with where I find myself and I'll be like I don't need to say that first of all that person doesn't need to hear that and second of all do you really you don't even know that person why like my dad just always needed to complain and mm -hmm. I don't know if it was always founded and so only in the last five years have I learned that I don't really feel that way. It was just this weird habit that was instilled yeah. by my father to yeah. always be talking, really, which is a problem. <laughs> just a lot of 
not the specifics, but generally what you're saying just really resonates with me. Like yeah. a lot of it is, and it, just like the filtering out, like I'll take this, I'll leave that, I want this. And then you yeah. wonder like, okay, I think, let's say you get it all right. Okay. Yeah. And then you have kids. What are they going to filter out of you? Like, absolutely. <laughs> what is like. Yeah, and then you're like, are they going to even be funny? You know what I mean? Because <laughs> that's pretty important for my kids to be funny. Yeah. But I mean, I don't, it took me a long time to realize I don't blame my parents. My parents did a horrible job in a lot of ways. But at the same time, we're all good people mm-hmm. and we're all healthy and we all work hard. I and feel the same way about my parents. So it's like they did a shit job, but they also did a great job a great at the job same too. time. And yeah. it's also not their fault that they did a shit job. I, if I had to do what my parents did tomorrow, I would fail so hard my parents had no my parents were dirt poor they had uh my mom had no family by the time she met my dad so not like you know what i mean she has a brother she has one brother she doesn't talk to and one brother she does literally had no other family my dad my dad's family was such a mess that he really didn't have family and his mom was gone and he had he was the oldest so it was like when he left people were like who's gonna take care of all these kids so it's like they didn't have family. They put themselves through school. They had terrible troubles with school. My dad always had like four jobs. You know what I mean? And then they started having kids while they were still in vet school and they had no money. They're they both veterinarians. Yeah, they're both veterinarians. So it's like just the first like five years of my parents' relationship is like, no, I can't. Yeah. I've kept a cat alive and I can't keep a boy more than two years. <laughs> I have no idea how my parents did this. It's funny because like there's this whole other side of you, which is not a bad thing that it exists. It's just... I wouldn't. I've never seen it in all the years I've known you because you're always so sweet and so nice. And I'm crazy, and yeah. <laughs> a, a good crazy person knows how to hide it. I mean, that's that's how you like people. People that are psycho that don't know how to hide it just aren't smart enough. Like I'm, I'm pretty yeah. smart. Like yeah. if I can give myself a compliment, I hide my crazy well. Like, do you know Tony Deo? I've met him. I think he's a good friend of mine. We do the road together all the time, and I'm always talking about some batshit crazy thing I've done. Like some just, uh-huh. just I call them my meltdowns, and like me and my sister are gonna start a podcast called the mealy meltdown which is we would talk about our latest meltdown and then we interview people about their meltdowns because that's just a running we have meltdowns Mm -hmm. and so i was telling him about one he goes you know what? i've known you for like almost 10 years i've never seen a meltdown and i go oh sweetie i was like while i can't control them i was like you'll see it soon like it's like (laughs) adrian you know adrian appalucci adrian has the best quote ever she's like you can't choose who you have a meltdown in front of and that's like completely how I feel. Like I've had some meltdowns in front of comics and people and boyfriends and all these people. It's not controllable, but when it does happen, you'll, like he literally was like, I've never seen that side of you. You've only told me about it. Right. And that's how I, I feel right now. Yeah. And I'm glad I tell people. I don't hide that I'm batshit crazy. Right. I just, I, I've gotten better at control. Cause when I was like a teenager or in college, I could not control it. And that was per- like just pushing it friends and boys away and now that i can control it i'm pretty honest when i first start dating somebody and if you know my material i'm pretty open about you mm-hmm. know whatever so it's like it is what it is you know what i mean but you're not really crazy i at like, least have the awareness of it like I, there's a lot of mental illness in my family it's in there uh-huh. i think if i don't take care of myself i always say mental illness is a switch almost like diabetes and heart disease just because it runs in your family you're not guaranteed to get breast cancer because your grandmother and your mother have it you have a higher chance of getting it Mm -hmm. but you're not guaranteed by what you do in your life how you eat your stress level all that stuff you either turn the breast cancer switch on or off both my grandmothers were mentally ill you know what i mean that's that's a pretty heavy switch so like how were they mentally ill uh both of them were institutionalized both of them um killed themselves that's actually how my parents met wow yeah so it's it's pretty. I kind of remember this from somewhere. You must have told me at some point. I had a, I had a joke about it a long time ago. It's the only time my mom's a huge supporter of me. It's the only joke my mom ever told me made her sad. So I say stuff about my entire family. It was the only time my mom ever told me it made her sad. I and feel like I remember this joke. Yeah. So I stopped telling it because it must it, have been an early early yeah, joke. Yeah. Yeah. It's like probably eight years old are you allowed to tell it now since you already brought it up uh, i don't really know it it was just it was just the idea that my parents met in this really tragic way where both their mothers killed themselves that i always thought that the way i would meet my potential boyfriend husband would be in a really tragic way like after a car accident or something okay so it was this idea that like maybe i haven't had enough tragedy yet to meet the man of my dreams 
So maybe you're trying to like do like a self-fulfilling prophecy kind of thing. Like you're trying to make a lot of tragedy so that you could fall in love. There's like I a think, romance to it. I think there's, I, I think I just come from a really dramatic family and I real I, I have gotten better. I think that's the thing. I'm the happiest I've ever been in the last like year and a half. And that's a mixture of taking control of my career and doing stuff that I want to do and not waiting for somebody to pluck me out of comedy obscurity. Mm-hmm. But then also seeing a therapist, understanding that I have some deep seated faults. These things that they're, some might not go away and some are always going to be something I struggle with. And as I've worked on them and been open about it and talked about it with friends that have seen every side of me. I mean, I've had some of my friends for 15, 20 years and they've seen the worst version of me. That There's people that have seen that and they still love me. So I'm still capable of getting love even at my worst. Mm-hmm. So as you start to like accept who you are and this... Who knows if I'm ever going to be in a place that I don't have all these meltdowns. Then you start to be like, all right, what can I use them for? What can I help other people so they know that you are worthy of love, as cheesy as that sounds, having all these meltdowns? And then also, you know, how how many scripts can I write about a girl that has meltdowns? (laughs) (laughs) So wait, so did your parents meet in... A support group for people who... No, they have never gotten any support over this. My dad's mother killed herself and then a year later he was like friends with my mom's roommate or he had dated my mom's roommate something like that but he had heard that like she was living at home and commuting to school but after her mom died um her dad had my mom's dad died when she was 10 and he was a world war ii vet so the house was owned by the government so then when her mom died they took they repossessed the house because it was the government owned it so she got kicked out and had to go into dorming so imagine you just lost your mom and your house all at once and now she's in the dorms and so my dad had heard it my dad's a really empathetic thoughtful person and he had just gone through this in the last year so i think he just went to console her they became friends from friendship they started dating and you know so how he was very young yeah my dad I want to say like my dad was probably like 20. So you're, wait a minute. So your dad is 20. Your mom is also around 20? Like 18. 18? Yeah, something like that. And your mom, your dad's mom killed herself. Yeah. And then your dad was friends with your mom's mother's roommate? No, no, no. My my mom's roommate. Like she ended up going into dorms. And so the girl that she moved in with was probably something that my dad knew, whether it was like a friend of his or a girl that he dated. So your dad was friends with your mom's dorming roommate. Yeah. And then he found out about this. Yeah, I just heard that, you know, this had happened to her. And what happened, where were both your parents' dads in all of this? Um, My mom's, my mom's dad died when she was 10. And my, my, my grandfather, who's still alive, is in Jersey dealing with his own issues you know because I mean? my dad's the oldest of five mm-hmm. so he, there's still a bunch of other kids he had to take care of and have they I, made any sense of I mean it's a senseless thing that they killed themselves right but they were they were like severely mentally ill like like I found out I always knew about my dad's mom I found out about my mom's mom in a very like bad like my mom just couldn't control her anger and stuff like that like my mom's mentally ill but like my mom has always been able to take care of herself in a way that I mean some of it's my, da- my the way my dad supports her but some of it is my mom has always kept to herself like I always say I know three facts about my mom like my mom just doesn't she's never been open like that and she's never been um She's never shared like that, but she is one of the funniest, kindest, smartest people I know. So if anything, my parents have kind of taught me that this is what it is and you work with it. So I think both my parents are just high functioning, damaged people and really smart, thoughtful, caring people. But they just had bags of shit that they would just I, I kind of they really are, like if you consider it emotional damage, they're hoarders of emotional damage. And they've just been literally lugging it around and putting it in other people. <laughs> and <laughs> I tried to explain to them that like if they take care of themselves, it would kind of help heal the rest of the family. But they don't. I think because my grandparents, my grandmothers were institutionalized and this was like in the 50s, like my one of my grandmothers got like electric shock therapy and she only got worse from it, which makes sense. They just are so distrusting of it. And now me, my little sister, my little brother are all in therapy and they, I mean, they're on their insurance, so they pay for it and it's there, but they don't like talking about it. Like I want to actually do a joke about it wherever I, whenever I say therapist, like I'll be like, Oh my God, my therapist actually said this thing really funny, which is almost like saying like my cat did this thing and it was funny. It just comes out. 
but my dad, my dad gets weirded out. Like I, I'm telling him about having sex on the roof with somebody. Like my dad gets so weirded out when I talk about therapy. And I guess I get it because <laughs> you're not in therapy because everything worked out in your childhood. But yeah. at the same time, the only you're not going into therapy just because your childhood was shit. That's not the only reason you're in therapy. It's a big part of it, but you know what I mean? <laughs> but but I don't I don't spend every session being like my parents, my parents. There's I mean, there's stuff they still do that's batshit crazy and those sessions are about my parents, but most of it is going, Hey, this thing happened to me, I'm struggling dealing with it, or this thing is going on and I'm excited, but I'm scared to be excited and you just work through those things and it doesn't always have to be this negative thing but I think my dad has this idea of what therapy is and it's completely negative and it's all his fault and he doesn't want to talk about mm. it he puts it on himself yeah but it's interesting that they both went into healing you know they're both yeah. healing things that don't talk back right good <laughs> I never got to know all this about you and so so it's almost been like a superficial friendship until now it's now it's real but it's like co-workers i think that's yeah. kind of how most comedy works is i you have a lot of co-workers that you're like oh my co-workers on tv you know i was hanging out with my co-worker and it's yeah. like people you like but it's like that next level when you go to get drinks with somebody or like you know i live with carmen and so my roommate carmen lynch like she is she's not she's more than a co-worker i mean we right. share, we, sh we share a building together. A room. We, we share an apartment. <laughs> uh, I, I acted like I own a whole yeah. building. Yeah, yeah. Because you also, it's like it's almost like coworkers that work on different floors. Like you don't see them that often. You run into them at the elevator. Like how many times do you, like somebody's getting off stage as you're going on stage, and that's the most you've seen. It's them? a perfect analogy, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, see, that's probably my problem. I never looked at it so rationally, like. <laughs> <laughs> Like, all my uh, friends are dicks. Yeah, like, these aren't real friends. <laughs> no, they're not supposed to be your friends. You just work in the same. Yeah, we work in we work in this really big <laughs> building together. I just expect everyone's supposed to be my friend. If we're comedians, we yeah. have a lot in common. Yeah, I see you. We're friends. That's, yeah, besties. Yeah. Where's my necklace? <laughs> coworkers. That's much better. Yeah, uh, that's a that's and a you very... like some of your coworkers and you don't like some of your coworkers. I think that's right. Sometimes they get a promotion and you're really happy for them, yeah. and sometimes you're like, "That should have been my promotion." Yeah, and then you're like, "I'm gonna turn off Facebook." <laughs> <laughs> but no one ever gets fired. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they quit. Most most people, some people quit. quit. Yeah, I think we and not even like. I was like, did you ever see Nate Bergazzi's joke where like he's like, how do you quit something nobody knows you do? And he's like, I don't <laughs> yeah, just like call up Bill Cosby that. and be like, I'm out. Yeah. I'm out, buddy. But it was such a perfect joke where you're just like, yeah, there's just some friends that all of a sudden you're like, hey, how's it going? And you just think you haven't been on the same shows. And they're like, oh, I haven't done it in two years. And you're like, oh. <laughs> Left the company, huh? Yeah. You're like, do you have a wife or like a job? Like, what do you do now? Like, I, you get to the point where you're like, I don't even know what questions to ask real people. <laughs> what do you do? <laughs> All right. Well, I asked you some things about yourself, and one of them that you came back with uh, was that you are fascinated by magic. One of my best friends is a magician in New York. His name is Prakash Peru, just incredible magician. He actually had a show with um, his business partner, this guy named Matt Holtzclaw, and it was called... Um, he had the show called Strange Things. It was actually at the pit for like two years. It was really good. I used to bring like all my friends to it. Um, but I met Prakash like not even the first day of school. I met him like the first day of living in dorms. He's from Singapore. Big Indian guy is from Singapore. And he he was just like the right level of weird. I was just very drawn to his weirdness. And I pretty much probably followed him like a puppy dog for like a couple of weeks. We had a class together and we just became like really good friends. And he was a magician and I was, I was a comic and we started to realize pretty quickly that we are on the same dork level. Mm -hmm. Like we, and, and just how similar, how, how for those two mediums, you have to be like super dorky to get good. Like a magician literally is like just doing the same thing with their hand over and over again. <laughs> if they can do something really cool with their hand, they've done it a million times. And it feels like. They're practicing a lot by themselves, but you know, same thing. If you see a comic that's really good, they've been on stage a thousand times. Like you can't get good without constant, you know, repetitions and, and constantly looking at it and trying to tweak it and improve it. And you have to have that extreme just, um, OCD-ness and, and passion and dorkiness to be good at it. And, all this is, you know, under the level, but I just found him so fascinating. I also think about magicians and comedians a lot in terms of that we're both in the business of surprise. Yeah. Like it's it's all about like revealing something. Like yeah. 
You didn't see, you don't think this is going to happen. Boom. Surprise. Like, yeah. why it's just for some reason we want to surprise everybody. It's also, I feel like perspective. So he's sharing his perspective and he's showing you a different way to look at something. And that's a hundred percent of what we do. Oh, like I, Mitch Hedberg is the best way to explain comedy. Uh, the escalator broke. It's now, you know, it's now accidentally stairs. stairs. Sorry for the convenience. Like he, he doesn't say anything we didn't already know. He says stuff that as soon as he points it out, you have an awareness of it. Mm-hmm. And I feel like the same thing of, with magic is, is like, okay, this is how I think this is going to go down. And it goes down a completely different way. And so I, I, kind of like that it's both mediums of showing somebody a different perspective Hmm. but magic too you think i think so i mean there's a a trickery to it i mean we all know it's not real but what's cool about it is is i mean you learn something about yourself and you learn something about the person doing it like i know how a lot of magic tricks work because i watch my friends Mm -hmm. and they tell me stuff and it's it's to me What's cool about knowing how a trick works is knowing how my brain worked to justify how it, I thought it worked in the first place. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? But even without knowing how things are, are working, it you you question everything. Like, how I can't tell you how many times somebody's told me a joke and I go, oh, I never thought of that way. And then all of a sudden I use that new filter to filter out other things. It just, I think it's a, a interesting way to change gears and open up your mind. I wonder if the thing for you is the fascination of figuring out how things work and like these reveals because the connection to your mom, not really understanding your own mom. So if you're like, if I can't understand her and I came from her, maybe I could understand everything else and how it works. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm a researcher, like a hundred percent. Like I was just telling a friend who I was just with my friend who had a baby. And I remember I like scared the shit out of my sister who just had a kid because I dyed my hair for the first time two years ago. And the woman doing my hair, she goes, just don't um, use shampoo with sulfate in it. And I was like, okay, why? And she goes, oh, because it strips the color out of your hair. So, it, you know, your hair's not dyed as long. And I was like, okay, cool. Why? She was like, I don't know, Liz. Like, I don't know. <laughs> so I go home and I start researching sulfates. And, like, it's, like, the worst thing for you. Sodium laureate sulfate. It's called SLS, like, for short. It's in everything. <laughs> it's fucking in everything. It's in, it makes things lather. So it's in your toothpaste. It's in your hand soap. It's in your shampoo. It's in everything. And it's actually banned in most countries. But America doesn't give a shit. And it's, like, really <laughs> hazardous to you. And that is my life. I find out one thing. And then it, there, I don't own anything that has SLS in it been two years wow. as soon as i as soon as i found out about it it's all gone I, now i'm like a tom's deodorant away from being a hippie it's pretty bad <laughs> uh that's that it will be the thing that keeps me single but for <laughs> me i have to understand stuff mm-hmm. and so and i feel like your stand-up is similar where somebody tells you something and you can't just take it at face value you have to find out either why you feel the way you feel or why somebody said something, the reason they said it or they did something. There's, there's, it's never just, it is what it is. Right. Which is, it's not, I have to get somewhere closer to the core. So I've realized that I'm beyond curious. Like curious is just trying to find out, you know, why it happened. Real, like beyond curious is just like, I will find out how this started. So it's like, there's like this giant puzzle. To me, I still, I always like think it comes back to the parents. Yeah. And I think like there's this like, like, okay, fine. If I can't understand my mom, I'll understand everything in the world. And then based on that, I'll understand her. Like the really long way around, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I I definitely think, I mean, I started researching mental illness and um, psychology and all, I mean, self-help, all that shit, like as young as like 15. I used to sit in bookstores reading about that shit because the truth is is that when you're younger you're just trying to connect with anybody and I was having trouble connecting with my family I was having trouble connecting with friends I was just very alone and I knew it was I always instinctually knew that there was something wrong with my house but I didn't know what it was so for me I and many kids are like that they instinctually know what's wrong and they know how to protect themselves but they don't know how to go beyond that so I always knew to kind of keep low not talk back you know making my mom laugh was always really important. My mom's brilliantly funny. My mom has this really dark, fucked up sense of humor. My mom is so funny and nobody knows about it. You know what I mean? There's a couple people that have worked for my mom for 20 years that have seen it. Right. Um, and I mean, there's a, she talks to her brother and I know he knows it. 
maybe a couple people that have dated us, dated us have seen it, but my mom just doesn't really express herself like that. And she kind of keeps all that stuff together. And it's to me, it's such a shame because she's so funny. Would you like to see your mom do stand up or would that be terrible? I wouldn't want her to see her do stand up and she never, she's so shy. She never would, but I would like to, she, she talks about writing a novel when she, um, she always loved Stephen King. Mm-hmm. She always talked about writing like a, like, um, what do you call it? Like a thriller or a crime book, whatever Stephen King writes. And she just told me, I was like, she would be so good. Like she already made all these artist kids like, and she reads a lot. And I think the first thing we all know when it comes to being an artist is just absorbing all that stuff. Mm-hmm. I think she would have like a great unique perspective and she wanted to do something with like something creepy with vet care. So she has all the knowledge, you know <laughs> what I mean? But I, I, no, I completely agree. I think there is something that you're always searching to connect with and understand in your childhood and you kind of put that out there. I, I actually told somebody recently, I have made mom friends and I have made dad friends. My mom friends are lifelong friends. Dad friends, we usually have some blowout fight and I don't talk to him ever again. And it's kind of my, like I go through ebbs and flows of being close with my dad and my mom, I always kind of just let my, I give my mom the benefit of the doubt. My mom mm-hmm. had a bad day. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> Something happened with my mom. You know what I mean? Because there's, I, I've. Are the friendships gender specific? No. They're, it's, it's an archetype. Like a person, like a, I don't date short guys a hundred percent because they all sound like my dad. My dad's five, four. And my, there's a short guy archetype that my dad fits almost to a T. So my roommate's five, two. Some of my good friends are short and that's fine but they also get on my last last nerves because they're always trying to prove themselves to people and i was like i get it women are overlooking you it's fine just like it but it is it's like instinctually inside them and Uh it's fine i don't i don't it's not that i don't find them attractive i find their personality to be exactly like my father and i don't want to date my dad Uh so it's like those are little things where like i can't i can't do it you know what i mean but my mom on the other hand i mean i think because i spent most of my life dodging my mom's bullets i i know i know how to deal with mom friends mm-hmm. there i know how to take care of them and i know how to not take what they do personally and i i'm one of those people's lifelong friends because that's how i grew up i wanted to go back to the topic of surprise with magic yeah because i think like that's an interesting thing so your your mom i'm trying to really i hear i feel it in my head i see this connection but i have to verbalize and articulate it so wait a minute so your dad and you are constantly fighting, like, I and then, like, or you're fighting. fighting and not fighting and not fighting. Is your mom the more predictable one in that case? In some or? sense, I think both my parents are unpredictable, and I think I've—I don't know if you're like this, but I'm in an unpredictable field trying to make it predictable, mm-hmm. and that's kind of like what my childhood was like. It was a very unpredictable childhood that I was trying to be like, okay, well, she flipped out last time because I didn't take out the trash, so I'll just always take out the trash. <laughs> and then she finds something else to flip out about. Right. You know what I mean? You're always trying to one-up and figure it out, mm-hmm. and that's been like the hardest thing for me to undo, which is trying to control my entire environment. Like right. I'm very much a control freak, and that's 100% because of my family. But, I mean, I... I'm only starting to be okay with surprises, good or bad. It used to be any bad surprise would floor me. Like, I'm just a mess. Mm-hmm. And I and I feel bad for anybody that has to be around me when I had that surprise. And even, like, good surprises, I'm such an anxious person, and it overwhelms me so much that the fact that I didn't prepare for this great surprise is too much for me. So Which I, is why you love magic, but you have to know how it works. Exactly. Exactly. You're like, I like, I like it, but I need to... I don't yeah. like the surprise. Yeah. That's so funny. Yeah. Everybody else likes the surprise of magic, but you're. And I'm like, wait, how'd you do that? <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because like you're a surpriser who doesn't like being surprised. I'm a surpriser who doesn't like being surprised. Hearing you talk, there's so much similarity, and I've always kind of felt like you know we started stand up at the same time. And there's always been some kind of parallel thing. Yeah, I mean, I feel like I think when people start young, when you know what you want to do when you're really young, that you, that kind of shapes who you are. You know what I mean? Like my sister is 32. And she's on like her fourth career, mm-hmm. um, and she still doesn't want to know. She still doesn't know what, what she, she wants. What does she do now? She's a nurse, but she went to she went to school, I think for like hotel management, and then switched that, and then got a major in like uh, event planning. She works for the government. She works for the Marine Corps for a while doing wow. event planning, and then um, I think she was a nurse, and then she was going to become a CrossFit coach, and then she was like, I don't know if I want to do that, so she had a baby, so she's a mom now, and now she might get into real estate. Like she has. No idea what she wants to do. And that's Mm. fine. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But it's a certain type of person that's constantly searching what they want to be when they grow up. And then I've, 
in some ways I'm searching because this is exhausting and I don't, I will always want to be a stand up, but I now realize that I have other skills outside it and I want to be able to mash them all together and do something more than just stand up. Like what? Um, I kind of want to be like a writer producer. Like I, I I definitely like bossing people around. I think there's (laughs) something about being an older sister. Um, I really enjoy it. Mm -hmm. I think that's half the reason I keep creating projects is I really like, I like the control and I like, um, I, I like collaborating and bringing stuff together and taking a vision in my head and putting it out there. And I want to do that for myself, but I want to do it for a lot of people I know that aren't able to do like I, I kind of want to be like a Judd Apatow you know what I mean there's different perspectives and visions out there and that's what I love about stand-up you'll see a show with seven comics and each person has their own perspective right and then you turn on the tv and it's all the same perspective yeah it's so weird you know what I mean and I think that's one of the beauties of stand-up is you have these different people that are digesting life so differently and you're able to spend 10 20 45 minutes with that person and live that kind of life and when those unique perspectives get put on Netflix or whatever, it really does. That's why people go nuts over Louie because it's just so different, but it's so hard to get something like that made. Mm -hmm. And now that we have more outlets like YouTube and Netflix and Hulu plus and all that shit, I want to, I want to jump on that bandwagon. Like I want to excited to see the stuff you're going to make. Yeah, no, I'm like ready for it. I'm like, all right, so put it on. Yeah. Cool. So we'll see. I'm starting, you know, I'm starting doing it myself and nobody watching. Green, I, gr- I green light <laughs> you your... You green light all my projects? Yeah, there you go. Oh, great. <laughs> it's going to be a reality show about magicians. It's <laughs> I'll do nothing new. And I'll be like, these magicians, did you steal my trick? And then they wrestle or whatever. <laughs> well, it's a good tra- transition point getting back into magicians because Alex uh, picked out the philosopher for you based on this love that you have for magicians. Yeah. Which is a complicated love, as we found out. Yeah, of course. So he says, what they have in common. Liz has an interest in magic, so I picked a philosopher of suspending disbelief. The guy's name is Samuel Taylor Coleridge, I believe. I'm dyslexic, but that one I think I can do. Samuel Taylor Coleridge, and he lived from October 21st, 1772 to July 25th, 1834. He died when he was 61. So young. So young. And he, I always base it all on, on Carlin, actually, when he died, 71. Yeah, that's, which that's I, a good ripe age for you. Uh, no, I just felt like that was the youngest old age that is, like, acceptable. Like, I mean, that's not pretty... even acceptable. Like, I, I felt like he went too too young, much too young. But, but if, like, it's almost stereotypical because I think guys die at 71. And, like, it says average is 71 for males and 73 to 76 are females. So he was just, I mean, for somebody that was Still? so... Uh, I mean, we haven't fixed that yet. <laughs> yeah, no. I mean, we're all living to 125, but right. you know, he he was born too early. Yeah, sad. <laughs> so this guy's like he he didn't even make it to Carlin age. He's only 61. I he know, but 61 seems real old for the 1700s. That seems like he. I mean, he seems like somebody that ran marathons and stuff. <laughs> he seems like like 61 seems super old. That I feel like didn't they all die at 30 then? I don't know. I mean. Not this really. guy had at least three wives, I can tell. <laughs> you can tell from the photo. On yeah, the... look at that hair. Such <laughs> luscious hair. He lived in Middlesex, England, and he went to Jesus College in Cambridge. Jesus College. He, Jesus College. Jesus College. <laughs> he was an English poet. He was a literary critic and a philosopher who, with his friend William Wordsworth, William Wordsworth. Yeah, horrible name. Uh, was a founder of the Romantic Movement in England and a member of the Lake Poets. He wrote the poems The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner and Kulba Khan. That sounds great. Kulba Khan. Sounds very African. Yeah, Kulba Khan. Let me tell you about my friend, my brother, Kulba Khan. (laughs) As well as the major prose work Biographia Literaria, his critical work, especially on Shakespeare, was highly influential, and he helped introduce German idealist philosophy to English-speaking culture. Coleridge coined many familiar words and phrases, including suspension of disbelief. Nice. Uh, he was a major influence on Emerson and American transcendentalism, which I think they... No, that's transcendental meditation. And I got nothing. Which is like really expensive, and all the Hollywood people do it. Throughout his adult life, 
Coleridge suffered from crippling bouts of anxiety and depression. Another connection. Let's do this. <laughs> it had been speculated that he suffered from bipolar disorder. Uh, that's very accurate to my family. <laughs> <laughs> Good pick, Alex. Yeah, they solid. A condition not identified during his lifetime. He also suffered from poor physical health that may have stemmed from a bout of rheumatic fever and other childhood illness. He was treated for these conditions with laudanum. I don't know. You're going to have got, to look I that got, one up. I got nothing. I don't have anything in my house with laudanum in it. Yeah. <laughs> Which, I hope we're not using the same shit he used in the 1700s. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised. I feel like it's all just remarketed and repackaged. Yeah, except for leeches. <laughs> The only thing people are like, that's weird. Yeah. Or it, it was expensive. It actually probably worked. It was just too expensive. Yeah. You can't mass produce that. Like yeah. they, if Monsanto could like find a way to make tons yeah. and tons yeah, of yeah, leeches, leeches, which fostered a lifelong opium addiction. Um, yeah. I mean, I don't particularly enjoy poetry, but I feel like in that time period, it was the stand up of the time <laughs> yeah. where you were able to speak your mind and give people a perspective maybe they weren't allowed to have. And I felt like it was the more challenging form of writing. Mm -hmm. So I will overlook the fact that he was like super deep into poetry and be like, that's probably like modern. He would probably be a stand up now. So I'm able to overlook that. I also don't really get into poetry, but I really wish I did. You know, I feel like that would make me deeper. Every time, you know how they still have poetry on the subway? Mm-hmm. Like the thing, every time I read it, thinking like, this is going to blow my mind and I'm going to get into poetry and I'm going to look up this artist and I'm, she's going to be my favorite poet. And then I'm like, I don't get it. It's just like, <laughs> it's just like they couldn't think of a punchline, right? <laughs> <laughs> just every time, yeah. I didn't, yeah. <laughs> this is just Gotta all tighten set this up, up Susie. <laughs> what is this? Yeah, I don't get it. Yeah. I mean, if you put flowers next to my jokes, maybe they would be poetic too. I don't know. Um, this ex-girlfriend of mine was an incredible poet, yeah, like unbelievable poet. And I couldn't, I knew what she was writing was amazing, yeah, but I couldn't get into it. And she knew I couldn't get into it. And, uh, it was, it was awkward because. No, cause you want to support them. I, yeah. I mean, it didn't ruin the relationship, but it was like, I always wanted, like, I knew what she was doing was really good. Like, I was like, this is really good poetry. But it's like some, it's like, but I don't care. I don't like poetry. I just didn't. Yeah. I mean, to me, like it'd be dating somebody that was amazing at sports. Like I can see that you're great at football. Mm. I, I, you should fuck somebody that really likes football because <laughs> I don't care. You're real. it's just, it doesn't, it does nothing. I'm not impressed. Like, yeah. I'm impressed because anything that takes a lot of skill takes a lot of skill, but like, I'm not, I'm not going to watch a game and be like, this is amazing. I'm going to be like, oh, it's my boyfriend. You see, he kicks well. <laughs> I'm assuming that they, I guess he's the right. kicker in this scenario. <laughs> I just realized football, unless it's soccer, <laughs> whatever. Let's see what Alex writes on suspending disbelief. He says, as society becomes more scientific, art still moves us, even though we know that it's fantasy. Like, uh, like magic, I would guess. Yeah. Is the thing like, even though you know that, you even know that the tricks, how the tricks are done, you yeah. said, but well, you still even like when them. you don't know how the tricks are done, you know it's not real. Right. You know what I mean? I, I, well, I didn't know that, but thanks. They're, they're not real. <laughs> but it's like the same thing like adults that go to haunted houses. Mm-hmm. It's not real, but you want it to, you want to, you want to suspend your disbelief so that you can right. enjoy it. He goes, This is because artist and viewer agree to suspend disbelief. Using magic as an example, when a magician performs a trick, the viewer's mind is ready to pick things apart. The magician's job is to be so skillful that we cannot readily explain what it is that he's doing. Once he has earned our trust that way, we make a conscious decision to shut down the rest of our logical defenses. Coleridge calls this poetic faith. The common thread here is imagination. Imagination is broken up into two types, primary and secondary. Secondary imagination is necessary to function in reality. It consists of things like the sun will come up tomorrow because you've seen it come up before. Primary imagination is the act of mental creation where you see chaos and you build order not found in the natural world. Um, like what if the sun turned into a dragon? He wrote, so I guess like primary imagination is, is what we do. We stand up a lot of the time where we construct something based on something, but we know you know, some some kind of fake thing based on something real. Yeah. And what was the other one? The secondary imagination was like you 
the sun will come up tomorrow, like, you know, it's going to happen. So you can imagine it's going to happen tomorrow, but it's not really, you're not really creating any new scenario. Yeah. You're just kind of like, oh, you're taking memory and imagining the future based yeah. on. Yeah. Like, on I like, I like inventors. Like, I like people that make stuff. Like, I always liked arts and crafts. I like, I always, I was always a person that would see an egg carton and be like, you know what you could do with that? You know what I mean? Right. Like, I like Pinterest for that reason. I like do-it-yourself stuff. Like, I mm. always would see something and think of four other things you could do with it. Right. Like, divergent thinking is, like, a big part of creativity. You know, uh, name 10 things you can do with a brick, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So, the same idea that, like, I always say, like, I have a three-minute story about somebody getting in my way before a train came and being and missing the train. It was seven seconds of my life. I have a three-minute story about it. You know what I mean? So it's like right. that kind of thing that you can you can take something and embellish it and make it into something bigger and take it to and compare it to something that wasn't there. And right. I think that's primarily what we're we're just complaining in a creative way. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> he says it is an active understanding. Primary imagination is the basis for art. As primary imagination is what you're describing. Art being based on imagination thus requires work from both parties involved. The skill of the artist and the suspension of disbelief from the audience. So, you know, you got to get the audience to go along with the this, this subway story, I guess. Absolutely. Because you only really have seven seconds of realness. Yeah. From that three minutes or yeah. something. I don't know. Unless you're just expounding on it with thoughts. but. Yeah, I mean, it's also painting a picture. Like, I was telling somebody the other day that, like, I find it so interesting that I don't consider myself that great of an actor, but I definitely set a scene. And I have physical, like, almost miming. There's... When I'm telling a story, I point to things because I've decided the dog is there mm-hmm. and that the comic is sitting there mm-hmm. and that my friend said something over there. Like I use because I'm very Italian, so I gesticulate a lot. <laughs> but I've realized that I, I've never said, okay, the comic's gonna sit there and the dog will be there. I always just in my mind have completely set a scene mm-hmm. and there's things in in certain and it's the dog is always to my left right there (laughs) the comic is always right there i'm always staring i have a joke about a kid he's right there like yeah it's weird how i've completely set a scene that nobody else you know what i mean like right right people can kind of see what you're saying but they don't see the you've turned the whole stage into a yeah and and then each joke it like swipes away and then it's a new set of people that's cool that would be really cool to produce like like everything that pops up around you as you're telling the yeah, joke, yeah, and, then, yeah. and then it gets like almost like a dry yeah. race board. I like that. That's vis- that'd be really visually cool. I've seen people do that with talks. Like there's some really cool talks that they do a dry erase board, and it pops up, and then it goes away, and then it pops up as, and it's just, all it is is audio from like a TED talk or something. So do it with stand up. We could do it. You're the new Ted Apatow. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like get, pitching I you get, stuff. I'm yeah, like, yeah, I, need to get I that, believed you now. I like need to I'm get like that Jed money. <laughs> Coleridge calls the primary imagination. The closest human beings will get to becoming God. Makes sense because God being a creator, we become creators. It's all, that's the most you can do, right? Yeah. Because um, sometimes I think like we're just all God's imagination. Of course. Like this is just like, this is just a dream, you know? Like how you create an entire world in your dream and then it's gone. Yeah. yeah. Or the idea that you, you can't, I mean, I've, I've made a habitat for a lizard. You know, I've created some things. Right, right. On a board Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> he says, when a magician performs, he uses his primary imagination to create the appearance of magic, and we use ours to take it the rest of the way. In this way, art is the lie that tells the greater truth. Because we are both lying to each other, but communicating the true spirit of human mind and emotion. See, I like that. Yeah. Like, that. that's, a, like, that's poetry to me. Like, I like... And maybe it is actually poetry, maybe. But like I like you know what I like? Pieces of poetry. Yeah. <laughs> like the whole thing. I like really like oh, I like the artsy way you said that. Yeah. But, but, oh I, yeah, like a beautiful prose. Like I just a, like a Yeah. I tend to get moved by quote I like quotes, which mm-hmm. is kinda silly. So I like little I like what do you call it? Like sound bites almost, like like that from there you pull apart the meaning of it. Mm-hmm. Which I think that's what you do at poetry, but it's like too convoluted for me. I just it's need it's too get... much in a row. Yeah, <laughs> just... I like I like one simile, yeah. just one solid simile. Don't give me seven. I don't have time for seven. <laughs> give me one solid simile. So in other words, we like poetry. Just shorten we're, it, really. Yeah, we're just not smart enough for good poetry. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I really like that line. Like the artist and is telling a lie. The artist telling a lie that tells a greater truth. 
because we're both lying to each other, but communicating the true spirit of the human mind and emotion. It's like almost like I say this happened to me last week. And then he said this, and so I said that. And like some of it's true, but there's always an exaggeration mm-hmm. of it. But it does feel like we're we're suspending our like you know comic books are really good about that. So comic books are completely made up people solving made up problems, but they do speak right. a larger truth about feelings and emotions and how we deal with chaos. And it does it has profound. We're packaging the truth in friendly lies to make it more palatable. Yeah, and to and to not be so sad all the time about yeah. it. Like, just giving someone truth, they're like, yeah, great, thanks. I don't Good, want... the world's burning and yeah. we're ruining everything. But maybe if you could put it into, like, some kind of... Spandex. Cool story, like, some fantasy story. Yeah. I guess that's what all movies are, especially kids' movies. The kids, they don't want to see, like, a real lesson, for, you know, yeah. because it feels like... But neither like, do adults. Right. Because adults are tell ourselves, like, because we as adults... I'm, like, talking about adults like we're not them. Yeah, yeah. Because we as adults, we tell ourselves, like, oh, I'm supposed to be an adult. I'm supposed to try and... Yeah, yeah, yeah. But really, we, I feel like... Yeah, you don't ever really grow up. Yeah, I told Kylie, like, the other day, I think I'm a fraud. I don't think I ever became, like, an adult. I'm just a kid who got bigger and bigger, and, and I'm just trying to pretend to everybody that that yeah. I'm actually an adult so that I can still fit in with my friends. But in some ways, I mean, some ways comedy... um holds us back from becoming an adult. You know what I mean? Because we aren't getting up at the same time every day and we don't have the same kind of responsibilities as people. And Mitch Fattel. I always feel like Mitch Fattel is like a big kid on stage. Like, yeah, absolutely. And he's so funny because he's got the most... Also, Andy Kaufman, like, they're just... The more you can hold on to the child... I'm sorry, this is different than what you were no. saying. But, yeah, we're not getting up in the regular schedule. We're not doing the adult thing. Part of the the game that we're playing is like, how much kid do you have left in you? Yeah, you know? a little bit. But then you also see how that kid can ruin your adult life. So it's like we're straddling this balance where I, I want to be taken seriously, but at the same time, I don't want to be as miserable as all these serious people. Right. And so I think, I think comics stay children longer in some sense, but I also think you can be an adult child. I know that sounds like ridiculous, mm-hmm. but I think you can both be creative and childlike and and fun and then also be somebody that shows up on time and pays their bills and judah is another good example that comes to mind judah friedlander yeah absolutely like always strikes me as like he's he's just a big kid you know he's wearing like a kid hat with like a funny kid thing on it and a kid like he's playing pretend all the time yeah pretending he's a world champion he's constantly in a game of pretend yeah he leaves the house and it's like oh time to play pretend again today like that's a good point no, you're right. It's it's like straddling that line where someone's like, oh, that person's too much of a kid. Like another comic's going to perceive you as being like, yeah, uh, that person. Because when you're too much of a kid, you don't show up to meetings on time. And you're you not don't... mature and your ideas aren't that, you yeah. know, textured maybe. And people want some meaning behind what you're saying and everything. But on the other hand, if you're too serious an adult, nobody wants to watch you on stage. Oh, yeah. And you're boring to be around and you're exhausting. Yeah. yeah. So it's interesting. We're like teasing this like line between adulthood and child childhood like yeah i agree all right i give you credit you said you love quotes you want to read the quotes fuck this shit (laughs) (laughs) yeah i'm ready (laughs) all right um veracity does not consist in saying but in the intention of communicating truth i mean that's to me that's Almost, from a childlike perspective, that's kind of how I felt. You can't just tell me you're going to do something. You have to show me. I mean, what my parents told me is very different from what my parents showed me. And the people that I care about, what they show me is way more important than what they tell me. Mm-hmm. I, I like people telling me they love me and they care about me, but the actions that people do, and every woman would say this, mm-hmm. that's way more important. So for you, the texting is like a very big way of showing it. Yeah, well, communication in general is, is super important to me, but it's 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 the amount. Why do you think that's so important? Is it like an abandonment issue? Like, don't not text me back because you I know feel abandoned? I know 100% what it is. When I don't hear from somebody, my imagination, which has both pros and cons, I, I need constant um, security. And so if the last text you told me is you love me and you think I'm great, between the next text... I have thought of every reason why you don't love me and you don't think I'm great. (laughs) And so I have a hard time being alone and I'm getting better at it, but Mm -hmm. I have a hard time. The space in between is, 
every bad thing that could happen, everything, oh, this is why they hate me, da 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 And then the next text would be like, oh, I was thinking about you all day. And I'd be like, oh, that's awesome. <laughs> I have no idea. It's, I'm, I have a hard time being alone with my thoughts. So that's where all the anxiety and self-hate and self-deprecate, like all that stuff, like that's pretty much what I work on all the time because when somebody doesn't get back to me, of course they get hundreds of emails and the world doesn't revolve around me. And sometimes it has nothing to do with you or maybe they don't like you and that's what life is and get over yourself. But that all that has been like a lifetime of work because that not getting back to or not getting back to quickly enough or not being constantly told that I'm, I don't even need to be told that I'm great. I just need to be told that I, I that you don't hate me. Mm-hmm. Like really all text messages should just be like, I don't hate you. And I'll be like, Oh my God, thanks for writing. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? So that's something that I struggle with and it gets exacerbated when it's boys. Was this like, because now I'm, I'm looking at our primary imagination and secondary imagination. I'm trying to figure out, as you're saying this, like, because you said it's your imagination, which it is. Yeah. That's doing this. I'm trying to think which one it would be. Because if it's based on something that actually happened a bunch it's, of times. Yeah, it's based on experience. It's primary imagination. Yeah. It's like the sun coming up tomorrow. You expect it, it to happen. Yeah. No, and it's hard to undo that. And so um, I've realized even with, like, people that I am really good at communicating with, like somebody like my roommate, um, She's given me countless examples that if I tell her something hurt my feelings or something isn't okay with us, that she's not going to yell at me. She's not going to throw our relationship out the door. It's not going to blow up in my face. Mm-hmm. I, it's the, the biggest fear of my life is you talking f- to her. You feel safe being communicating what you really feel. When I do it. But the process to get me to communicate is like the most terror I feel. Do you feel like in, in your relationships you're often very passive aggressive because you're afraid to be real? No, I'm not. I've never been passive aggressive. I that's something I can't tolerate nor what I put on somebody. I do shut down. So it's less about being passive aggressive and it's more about giving no I give no answers. Isn't that kind of passive aggressive because you're like holding in all the aggression? Pa- passive aggressive to me means um um I will get across my meaning by being shitty to you. Ah. Where I I don't know how to communicate. Or I'm scared to communicate, so I will say nothing, and I'll pretend it's not but there. But you're not still like being super nice, saying nothing. Like you're probably communicating. Oh, I'm, su- I'm super so, nice. So I'm, you're like you're hurt, but you're I, projecting. I push, I push it down. Wow, you're good. Yeah, no, <laughs> I, I, I really, I, I will not tolerate passive aggressiveness with myself or with other people. That's the first. So, so you're mad at someone, but you won't communicate it, and you'll be super sweet to them, so they have absolutely no indication at all. Oh, absolutely. There, my friend told me this years ago. She goes, because, you know, we'll see somebody and we'll, you know, like another comic or whatever, and we'll talk to him and it'll be fine. And she'll be like, she'll be like, I thought you don't like that guy. I was like, oh, I hate him. She's like, you're like amazing. But I don't, he doesn't yeah. need to know I hate him. He's not going to change. I see him once a year. It doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter. And it's like, what, like now it's like, what, like, what am I going to do with that hate? Right. You know what I mean? It's, it's not important enough. And I, he's a coworker. I mean, unless, <laughs> I, I mean, there are certain people that I've told, like, please get away from me. But that uh-huh. doesn't need to be said. And but there with now I know with people, whether I care about them, I tell them, hey, I care about you. And if somebody I have a problem with somebody I care about, I've now learned to communicate. But I've spent most of my life being like, you will never know. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not healthy. It's kind of like what your mom does. Like you have no idea. Oh, yeah. Like, no idea. You, you got that from her. Like, yeah. I my dad's very similar. Hide too. everything. Yeah. My dad's very similar, too. But my dad doesn't hide it as well. All right, cool. Let's do the next quote. Okay, so this is on defining primary imagination. The primary imagination I hold to be living power and prime agent of all human perception and as a repetition in the finite mind of an internal act of creation in the infinite I am. I think he's talking about God and how creation is constant. I think that... I mean, this is a hard one for me. Let's take it piece by Piecemeal. Piecemealy. So the, so the piecemealy. Uh, the primary imagination I hold to be the living power and prime agent of all human perception. So I hold to be the primary. Say, say wait. The, the primary imagination I hold to be the living power and prime agent of all human perception. Okay. So it's, I think it's the thing that guides all of us. You have to trust that this, that nobody's going to hit you when you're driving down the road. So that's, that's, I used uh, to struggle with that a lot. Oh yeah. I yeah. mean, my dad always always told me he's not scared of me driving. He's scared of other drivers. Mm. So there's, there's, um, that imagination is the belief that, um, that it's, this is what keeps us all sane. Mm-hmm. So, 
I, it's one of the most important found foundations of who we are as humans, I would think. Uh-huh. And then as a repetition in the, in the finite mind of internal act of creation in the infinite I am. Is a repetition okay. in the finite mind of the internal act of creation. In, in the, the finite infinite. mind, is that is that the mind of God? Because he's saying in the infinite. What does he say in the infinite? Um, as a repetition in the finite mind of the internal act of creation. In the infinite, I am. See, I feel like the infinite I am is God. It sounds like it. It sounds like a cool way of saying God, right? The primary imagination I hold to be the living power. He's saying I hold it to be the living power and prime agent of all human perception. I think you nailed that pretty well. Like, your primary imagination is based on experience, based on things that happen. Like, again, the sun coming up, it's the power and the prime agent of all human perception. So we perceive things in our life based on prior knowledge that we have so we use that imagination to perceive in how we perceive everything. So yeah. you see something based on how you've seen it many times. As a repetition, so it repeats itself in the finite mind. See, that's the part that gets, like, what is a finite mind? I mean, a mind that maybe can't think as big, like, as, like who isn't thinking past the next day. Okay. In the finite mind of the eternal, eternal means forever, right? act of creation in the infinite meaning never ending i am i have no idea (laughs) well to me it's maybe it's the idea that we're always creating and we're always growing and so there's the repetition so Mm -hmm. the sun comes up the sun goes down but that the fact that there might be you might learn more about the sun so the idea that it's going to have a different sunset or it's going to that a rainbow comes after you know, it rains or like, you know Mm. what I mean? So there's some things that we know, but then there's also exceptions and there's also growth and there's also, we're always changing. So even though there's consistency in a lot of way, there's also, um, uh, growth consistency and I could be talking out of, I am talking. No, this sounds, this is your, I I believe it. I like, it seems a little clearer to me now. The internal act of creation in the infinite I am. So the, maybe the infinite I am, I am is, is you. Yeah. And the, the idea that we're constantly growing and changing. I mean, like we do. I mean, your cells are change. Everything changes in your body over and over again, even though you're not focused on it. But mm-hmm. So that makes sense then. The primary imagination is basically your perception as it repeats itself in your mind based on everything that you've seen again and again throughout your life. The infinite I am. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe we got it. Maybe, yeah, maybe. maybe we're geniuses. I don't know. Or <laughs> maybe we're completely way off. But either yeah. way, we got something I out of like it. I would like one angry fan to be like, what <laughs> the fuck? <laughs> Never teach a class. All right. Last one, Liz. Uh, during the act of knowledge itself, the objective and the subjective are so instantly united that we cannot determine to which of the two the priority belongs. Oh, that's interesting. I like that because that's so stand-up related. Um, So the act of knowledge itself, the objective and the subjective are so instantly united that we cannot determine of which of which of the two are uh, the priority belongs. So I think of stand-up, which is subjective. I'm telling you my perspective on this thing. Mm -hmm. But there's certain things that are objective that I'm standing there. You know what I mean? That I am a woman, Mm -hmm. uh, that I'm holding a microphone, that this is an experience I'm talking about, whether you believe it or not, I am talking about it. And you as an audience member are constantly trying to weigh out the things that are completely true. And everybody can, we are in a room, we are in a basement right now. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Right. To, to what is subjective, which is, did this really happen? Is this really all that interesting? Is this clever to me? Is Mm -hmm. this funny to me? And you have to, and I think each person goes, I don't really like women, so fuck everything she has to say. Or, oh, it's a really interesting perspective I've never heard before. She's so funny. And that's where they're trying to figure out the priority and where it belongs. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, and and also, like, so many people that come up to you after a show and they go, that really happened? Yeah. You know? And you're like, is that what you got from the story, if it happened or not? <laughs> I tell jokes for a living. Calm down. And a lot of mine really did happen, oh, too. Yeah. But, but what's the difference to you if it happened or not? Why? Is it less legitimate if it didn't happen? Like, yeah. And as I always say, like, 
especially because stuff, my stuff is so personal and is like 98% true half the time. It, it's still a character because by the time I work out the joke, I'm no longer that person anymore, whether it's because that experience made me grow as a person or because I just don't feel that way about that anymore or I'm in a different part of my life. I'm in a different apartment. Big things happen in my career. I feel better about myself. Than, right, whatever it right. is, I'm. it always feels like my stage character is six months younger than who I am as a person. I feel the same way and, and, and it's good to hear you say that because sometimes I feel like a fraud in that way. I'm like, that doesn't represent me. Yeah. I'm like, oh, I can't. It's hard to represent me in the present on stage. Yeah. Because of the time that it takes to to master and solid, like make the joke solid. So, so unless you're like, you know, Mort Solin going up with the paper, uh, today's paper and joking about it or something. Yeah. It's really, you know. No, and that's why I feel like my albums, like they come out when they come out because I no longer want to tell those jokes anymore because they don't represent me. Right. You know, and there's some jokes that I've done for a long time because they do represent me and then I build off them. Right. But, or I'll take an old joke and I'll change it because my perspective has changed it. But for the most part, I'm always creating the joke, getting it good, and then shelving it because it's no longer me anymore. Right. The, all the all, albums are all old me. Yeah, old seriously. Me, old they me should, here, They should old be me. old me, you know, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, LP1. You know when, I mean? when can I see current you? Never. Never. You can only I see mean, past me. I mean, current me is when I had a bad day and I'm doing an open mic. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, oh, that's kind of funny. I don't like, like current you. Yeah, you're, yeah, yeah. Past oh. you is always funnier. Yeah, exactly. That's how I feel. <laughs> I think my I think current me, my friends and family have learned to digest and believe is funny. Right. But like past me is the one that people that don't know me well enough have decided to accept. So the people closest to you appreciate you in the moment. Oh, of yeah. People, everybody thinks I'm funny when I'm angry in my life. But st- <laughs> I've been full Liz angry on stage and is not accepted. Because angry me is just telling everybody to go fuck themselves. And yeah. It's not really at. There is creativity in it because I think eventually your mind is sharper. So I am saying funny things and there's nuggets of that that get put into the joke. Mm-hmm. But full-fledged angry Liz is a huge turnoff for most people. So it's almost like it has to be bite-sized and, and, and just shaved a little bit and coddled, and then it could, then then the audience can see it. Because nice. otherwise, it'd be four people in the back that are like, Liz, you're so crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Liz, they're just calm about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Liz, you're so crazy. You're so crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I just, well, I just, all my friends are like black women from the 90s. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> all my friends. But they're also not that excited about it either. Yeah, like, they're like, Psh. Liz, you're so crazy. Exactly. Well, same old Liz, always yeah, crazy. Always crazy. <laughs> well, it was great having you here. Yeah, thanks for having me. I feel like we're real friends now. Yeah. Not just I co-workers, we, are we? We took a co-worker and then we went to like podcast besties. Co-worker then, retreat. We went yeah. on a company retreat. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I met your turtle. It feels real. <laughs> He's, a feels like, He's a tortoise. He's a tortoise. I'm sorry. I've already broke the friendship. It's done. Yeah. <laughs> this bitch can't listen. You just ripped it. You've ripped my philosopher in You half. should know this as the daughter of two vets, but maybe no, you rejected it because... No, the, yours is a reptile. I've learned nothing about reptiles. Even though my we had a lot growing up, mm-hmm. um, like chameleons and lizards and stuff like that. I, my mom, if it died, my mom's like, oh. I know you're a cat person. I know from yeah. years If you put of some you fur on your tortoise, I'd be like, oh, that's definitely a domestic short hair tortoise. <laughs> <laughs> can tell. Totally it's a tabby tortoise. Yes, it's tabby. I like your calico tortoise. And you're like, yeah, it's, it's been, it's like a little bit of a breeding situation. But thank you for noticing. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks so much, Liz. Thanks for coming. Oh, thanks for having me. All right. Bye. That's our show. Thank you for listening. Thank you again to Liz Mealy. If you can, go pick up her album. It's called Emotionally Exhausting. You got to hear Liz Mealy. She's just great, as you could tell from the interview. I love Liz Mealy. Comedic love. I'm in love with her comedy, and I want you guys to hear it as well. It's fantastic. Uh, Other than that, check out my other podcast, The Mostly Bull Market, on CBS's Play.it, and that is me discussing companies with comedians and whether or not we feel based on our comedic sensibilities you should invest in them stuff like that and that is the mostly bull market liz was on that one too so check it out and please donate to the show go to moderndayphilosophers.net anything you can give would help it's appreciated it helps the show continue on 
Leave a nice comment and five stars on iTunes and have yourself a great week. Thanks for listening, everybody. Goodbye.